Friends, let's have a word of prayer. Let's get going. Lord, we pause a moment so that we can give you our attention. It's so hard to do that. You know that. That's why you call us to prayer. We pause a moment to remember and to celebrate the fact that you have given us this moment in this place with these people for the sacred task of listening again to your story and to our story within your story. We pause a moment to thank you that we can be here in a place of prosperity, a place of peace, a place of freedom, a place where we enjoy so many of the blessings that you intend for all of your children around the face of the earth. We thank you for hands that have lovingly prepared food, for hands that have lovingly prepared this room. We thank you for technology and those who operate it so that other people can participate wherever they may be, whenever they may be. We thank you especially for your faithful servants over generation upon generation who have written your word, who have reflected on your truth, who have sought to be faithful in their own time and to pass down the faith to we who now are the beneficiaries. We thank you for all of these things, recognizing that we don't realize the blessings that you give, but we do know that you are with us. So come and be with us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Hi. <laughs> What's it? Well, thank you. Good to be back. Good to be back. I actually got back at a just before midnight last Tuesday night, and I just didn't see any way that I could physically be here on Wednesday morning. Plus, Jan had already prepared the study, which is a great thing. So um, I'm beginning to wake up from the trip. It takes a week at least. Yes, travel gets to be harder and harder and harder. That's just the way it is. At any rate, it'll probably be sometime right after the first of the year uh, when I do my traditional show and tell, here's what I did on my fall vacation in the Middle East sort of thing. That's because there's so much going on every Sunday here uh, because, uh, Wendy, I, I hate to tell you this, but Christmas is almost here, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's November. At any rate, uh, very briefly, it was a great trip. Things went very well, generally according to plan, which is no small thing when you are going that far and that complicated of a place. So uh, I bring you greetings from sisters and brothers in the Presbyterian churches of Syria and Lebanon. They think of you, they pray for you, they appreciate you, and I would encourage you to do the same for them. So let's dive into Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Let's put this very quickly into context. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we have a section that is often called now the prehistory, okay? Stories about what went on before people were writing things down or even before people, <laughs> right? The creation, 
all of those stories of the creation and the fall and the flood and all of that stuff, we call the prehistory. These are the, the stories that tell us deep theological truth, deep existential truth about where everything comes from, why it is, what its purpose is. We call it prehistory because we don't really try to look at it as the story of what actually happened from our perspective of what actually happened. When we think of history, we think of, you know, the fact that on July 4th, 1776, a, a bunch of folks gathered in Independence Hall in Philadelphia and signed a document and declared our independence uh, from the British crown. That's history. That thing actually happened in that way. But the prehistory is not so much about it actually happened this way as this is what happened in a, in a broad sense, in a deep sense. With chapter 12 then, which you started looking at last week, with chapter 12, we have history. The idea that God, whoever God is, God appeared to Abraham and said, Abraham, I have a plan for your life. That's the beginning of the history Scholars will agree. Some, some that are out kind of on the far fringes will say, well, Abraham is just a made-up character. But generally, scholars agree that somewhere at some point in time, something happened to somebody named Abraham. <laughs> okay, at least that much. <laughs> and, and, and there begins the unique story, the specific story that's going to now carry us through the rest of the Bible. And so we've finished, as it were, sort of the, the backstory. Oh, God created everything, everything fell apart. And now God has a plan for putting it all back together. And now the specific and unique story of Abraham and the people of Israel and God's blessing of the whole world through the people of Israel begins. That was last week. God appears to Abraham and says... You're here living your own life happily ever after, and all of a sudden there's a humongous interruption, right? Some of you maybe have had humongous interruptions in your life before, right? Everything's going on exactly as you planned it. It's all hunky-dory, and then boom, the bottom falls out, right? You win a $1.2 billion lottery, and all of a sudden your life changes. I don't know. So it, it's impossible really to overestimate uh, what happened in Abraham's life, but it was enough that Abraham cho uh, chose uh, to, to obey this voice of this God, to trust this voice of this God, and pick up everything, lock, stock, and barrel, um, sometimes I think of Jed Clampett when this story appears, I, I know that, you know, Strike me now, God. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's time to pick up everything and move to Beverly. Put Granny in the rocking chair in the back of the truck and pack up the hound dog and the shooting iron and go. That's kind of what Abraham does. I mean, that, you know, obviously making fun of it, but, but that's big. That's super big. Abraham trusts God and says, okay. Can you imagine? I hope you talked about this last week. Can you imagine what Abraham's neighbors thought? Or what Sarah thought. I mean, what a cockeyed idea that is. But off he goes. Abraham obeys God. And off he goes. And then the story continues. 
Now remember that the story of Abraham is the specific story of a specific people that's going to color, it's going to influence, it's going to characterize the rest of the story of Scripture. In some ways, you have to come back to the story of Abraham in order to understand everything else in Scripture. So let's continue the story. Let's read verses 10 through 20 of chapter 12, the next section. Now, there was a famine in the land. After Abraham picks his family up and moves them off into the land that eventually he believes will be the homeland, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. Fascinating story with a million details left out. Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> You're not going to know. It is interesting to, to try to fill in some of the details, and bits and pieces of them we can, in a sense, from our general knowledge of culture in that time, uh, but only in a general sense. Most of the specific details we cannot. And so we have to think about this particular story. Remember, we're in history now. There is some kernel of truth somewhere in this story. And I don't, I don't mean to suggest that anything about the story is not true. It's one of the stories that survived out of all the stories that could have been told about Abraham. How many of you have, have studied family history before? Anybody here studied family history, right? Helen just got back from about three weeks with my mom where she sat and listened for hours and hours and hours and hours to family history. And what happens when you listen to history is that some stories are more memorable than other stories. They, they just stick in your head. Think about all those stories that ultimately just go away and nobody remembers. This is a story that the people remembered. It's a big story in that sense. And so what is the story trying to say to us? Well, let's look a little bit just at the details themselves, at the way the story is told, what's going on with it, and then let's try to figure out what is the story actually saying to us. Okay, so Sarai 
Remember Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, the spellings change over time. Some of that is because spellings and pronunciations tend to just change over time. Some of that is because we have different, different historical traditions that have flowed into this story about this person, Abraham. Remember, we're, we're now many generations beyond Abraham as this story is being written down. So don't, don't be too worried about the different spellings. We're talking about the same people. Sarah, I'll just say Abraham and Sarah. That's the common way we think about them. Sarah's beautiful, great, wonderful. And Abraham knows that he as an alien, he and his family, they're crossing a border, going to where they don't belong. And he realizes he and his family will be vulnerable to what the Pharaoh wants to do. And in that culture, the Pharaoh has a harem. Uh, and Sarah's beautiful, he might want to take Sarah. Now, the way that, that the Pharaoh can get to Sarah is to have Abraham killed. No big deal. That was done all the time. Human life is not worth all that much to people, especially if you were an alien in the land. Um, and, and so Abraham concocts a, a scheme. Let's say that you're my sister. I will willingly give you up in order to protect me. Now, why would Abraham do that? I know what's going through your heads. <laughs> why would Abraham, let's, let's hold that question, why would Abraham willingly change the truth, in other words, tell a lie, uh, in order to protect his own skin? That's a question we need to ask. That's what Abraham does, and indeed, the story plays out. Pharaoh takes Sarah, she's a beautiful woman, he gets to take whoever he wants into his harem, uh, and, and because Abraham is the one who's brought Sarah here, Pharaoh is generous and, and, and benevolent to Abraham, and Abraham gets rich. And then things start going badly in Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh somehow perceives, we do not know how. Nothing in the story tells us what exactly happened or how Pharaoh perceived that all of this was because of Sarah coming into his household. And somehow Pharaoh finds out is, does God tell Pharaoh? Does someone else tell Pharaoh? Maybe someone in Abraham's household. This isn't just Abraham and Sarah in their little Honda CRV driving into Egypt, right? This is a household. So there's a lot of people involved with this. In some ways, it's no surprising that this, the truth leaked out. That's one way we could look at it. The truth leaks out somewhere or the other. Pharaoh gets an idea of what goes on. I think Pharaoh's response is absolutely kind of fascinating. You know, at that point, Pharaoh uh, says, I should not have taken a married woman. And so he gives her back and says to Abraham, just get out. Pharaoh had the right, he had certainly had the power to kill Abraham and keep Sarah if he wanted to, or to kill them both because they had acted under false pretenses, right? So at the end of the story, um, Abraham and Sarah, primarily Abraham, Abraham's the primary actor in this, uh, they get off scot-free, and they survive the famine, and, and, and they leave with their wealth. That's, that's the story. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Now, let's talk for a minute. Let's, 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 um, let's tease this apart. What's going on with this story? Why are we told this story? Why is it in the book? There we go. In spite of Abraham's faith, God is faith, faithlessness, God is faithful to him. Yeah, yeah, that's really the upshot. Abraham, in the first story, 
when a God comes to Abraham and says, get up and move, Abraham gets up and moves. Abraham acts faithfully. He trusts God. In the second story, Abraham trusts God, but he decides to help God because he's not sure that he can trust God. Right? That's what it boils down to. If Abraham tells the truth about who Sarah is, he thinks he's going to lose Sarah and lose his life, which would be the end of the story, wouldn't it? How can you become the father of a great nation if you're not alive anymore? And by the way, you don't have any kids either. So just as soon as we're told a story about the faithfulness of Abraham, now we're told a story about not so much, the faithlessness of Abraham. Abraham concocts his own scheme, his own device. Now, I know that at least one or two of you here have already read the book of Genesis. And there's another famous example of when Abraham takes matters into his own hand because God isn't taking care of things well enough as far as Abraham is concerned. When Abraham and Sarah continue to live together and get very, very old, and they still don't have a kid, Abraham says, oh, I got to have a baby. I got to make this happen. And so he takes Hagar and has a baby with Hagar, Ishmael. But God doesn't let that stand either. Time and time again in the story of Scripture, people, except for one person that we'll meet later on, people sometimes act faithfully, sometimes don't act faithfully. But the point of the story is not so much about the people as it is about God. I was thinking, well, actually the other day, uh, speaking with the Lacosta Glen folks about the first sentence of Rick Warren's book, right? Purpose Driven Life. You remember the first sentence of the book. It's not about you. Who said that? Yes. Gold star today. <laughs> it's not about you. The story of the Bible is not about you. The Bible is not meant to be an answer book for you to turn to, to say, I have a hangnail today, or I've missed my hair appointment. What does the Bible have to say about that? The story of the Bible is, first of all, the story about God. And then we get involved in the story, which is pretty cool. So this is the story about God. This is the story about who God is. Yes, Marilyn, let's get a microphone to you. And is it on? Francie, our small group leader, has been bringing a book by somebody named Prager. He's a Jewish scholar. Dennis Prager, yeah. Okay, and and he he mentions um, the uh, the idea that uh, Abraham was faithless and he lied, and that's kind of bad. Mm -hmm. But then he puts forth another point of view: is that sometimes you have to lie. Hmm. Sometimes you have to lie, and he, and of course, any of us we've, we've all read stories about the Holocaust and and people who were working for the resistance, and they had to lie mm -hmm. for, the, for the greater good. Mm -hmm. So he, that's an interesting point that, that God perhaps was using, or maybe in, actually did use that lie yeah. for the greater good eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, what is your opinion of that? Uh, that's a fascinating idea. I mean, we do lie, you know, at everything about, um, about military security and subterfuge and protecting people, all of that stuff, of course, we lie, we lie all the time to try to save a situation. And we often do save a situation. And I would have to say I would do the exact same thing in that situation. So would you. Um, at some point, 
at some point you have to think about how much can you move away from the truth without without selling your soul out, right? Um, and there's no there's no solid answer to that question. There's no solid answer. You know, think about the uh, the Holocaust is a great example. You know, all those families that that protected Jews and hid them in their basements, right, or their attics or whatever. Uh, we look at that as righteous moral behavior, um, and yet it is telling a lie, right? And yet God still uses that. the The Bible, in some ways, I, be careful how you might interpret this. In some ways, the Bible um, is full of stories that are morally ambiguous. And that, that's real. That's real about our lives, right? You know, now, modern, western, 21st century, uh, post-women's movement sensibilities about this story would throw Abraham under the bus in half a second, right? Understood. And Pharaoh would throw Pharaoh under the bus in half a second. And, and the whole system of, of governance and society and culture where, you know, the rich, powerful guy gets to keep his harem. That all, there's a million things here that are not politically correct. <laughs> and yet they are the story of real people. And so, um, yeah, I, I think Prager makes a good point that sometimes... Sometimes we hide the truth in order to achieve a larger good. But there's always a question with that. There's always a question with that. And I think we just have to leave it there. Because you and I, in the midst of our lives, are called to make decisions all the time about what we do or do not say, do the truth we do or do not tell. Right? We, we often hide the truth from each other, you know. And the classic example, and this is how much I trust you all and love you all, you know. When she walks out in the outfit and says, does this make me look fat, you know. Um, that's, the classic, that's the classic story, you know. Um, I know, I'm in trouble. Yes, Susan. But isn't there a, a big difference between the law and God's law. In other words, the law says Pharaoh can do this, this, and this, but God's law is different. And I think, especially in today's world, we have to separate the two. And so much of it is just the law says this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And it's not God's law. Yeah. Uh, you make a very good point, and then I'll want to make the opposite point too, which is usually what I'll do. There is a difference between our law and God's law. And however, our law at its best is meant to be an expression of God's law. Our law says you shouldn't murder people. Okay, that's an expression of God's law too. Now, our law then goes a whole lot further to try to define what murder actually is and whether it's first-degree murder or second-degree murder or manslaughter or blah, 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 blah. And I understand all of that. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that. Uh, scripture rightly points out 
the fact that God's law and our law sometimes don't match up, and our laws can get incredibly twisted around so that they actually become the opposite of God's law. Right? Easiest example for us in, in, in our world is, you know, slavery was perfectly legal. And that's exactly opposite of God's law. So the Bible recognizes the ambiguities and the gray areas of life in life, but ultimately takes us to the place where despite all that, still God prevails. Prager is right. Abraham messed up a bunch. All the heroes of Scripture, so-called heroes of Scripture, mess up all the time. There's only one who does not. Jesus, right? The greatest heroes of Scripture, and most of them are guys, let's admit it. You know, I'm sorry we don't have more information about the women. We'd have more dirt on you too, and we'd be able to talk more about you, but we can't. We'd have to talk about the guys, <laughs> right? Abraham, Moses, David, all of them. But still, despite whatever their actions and reactions and decisions, God still ultimately works for good in that. So that's this story. That's this story. Abraham does something that is dishonest in order to save his own skin. And what's interesting in this story is that at several different points, it could have gone exactly wrong. You know, Abraham could have said to Pharaoh's people, this is my sister. And somebody else could have piped up right at that point and said, no, she's your wife. Okay? And, and things could have ended right there. Right? Or later on, when it comes out that Sarah is Abraham's wife and not his sister, Pharaoh, as I pointed out, Pharaoh simply could have said, you both lied to me. Or Abraham, you lied to me. Abraham's the responsible party here. At this point, Sarah is just property. Okay? So Abraham's a responsible party. He lied. Pharaoh could have had him killed there, right? His, his subterfuge could have and in some way should have backfired on him, uh, fatally so, at several different points, and it didn't. At the end of the story, Pharaoh, uh, Abraham and Sarah come off scot-free. You know, they've survived the salmon, the, the salmon, the famine. I can't talk this morning. Jet lag, jet lag. That's going to work. That excuse will work a couple more days. <laughs> They've survived the famine and, and, and they go back to their homeland rich. Right? What's that about? Does that happen sometimes? Do, do people who do bad things sometimes end up pretty good shape? Yeah, yeah. Enough about your ex. Let's talk about somebody else right now. <laughs> right? Okay, so that's the story, really. That's the story. Um, there's a lot you can talk about, you know, Abraham being an alien and all that sort of thing. But the simple story is that Abraham, in a sense, acts surprisingly here. Here's this faithful guy who's picked his family up and moved them. And, and now he's trying to orchestrate everything, make it work. That's a little bit surprising, maybe. But it shouldn't surprise us because Abraham's a human being. Pharaoh, I think Pharaoh acts surprisingly here. And that's another story. You'll see a lot of themes that start to develop in these stories that play themselves out over and over and over again. Pharaoh actually comes out pretty well in this story. Okay, Set aside the whole business of you know, the absolute rights and authority of, of kings, of pharaohs, and all that stuff. That's just the world Pharaoh lived in. He was acting morally and responsibly. Actually, 
Pharaoh ends up, in a, in a way, being the more moral and responsible character in this. He said, I didn't know she was your wife. I'm giving her back. I can't keep her. And you guys just go. Just go. I'm not going to do anything. That, that's pretty upright in my, don't you think? Um, and it's Abraham who kind of comes off as sort of the, the slick, tricky operator. Um, but he ends up okay. Isn't that interesting? Yes, Stephanie. There we go. Get the runners going, quick, quick, quick. <laughs> right here. So Abraham had to have been a pretty um, organized, thoughtful person when, because when God took him to this new land, he had he was in charge. He had to make it work. Mm -hmm. So as this famine evolved, where they were living, he had to make a decision on how to save his family, mm -hmm. and why he chose Egypt knowing that the that his wife would then be and his life would be in danger. So it, you know, how much how much of it was that God picked a person who was um, self-sufficient and organized who would then made a decision that he would, you know, it was a, an important decision. He had to, he had to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And why, I don't know how he chose Egypt, but um, God understood that that this was a man who was going to make decisions on his own sometimes. Sure, sure. And, yeah. God, and God expects us to make decisions on our own. I suppose you could say, I hadn't thought about this, but okay, there's a famine. God says, go to this land. And there's a famine. Abraham could have said, well, God said, go to this land. We're just going to sit here until God feeds us. The story is not about how Abraham made a bad decision to go take care of the family and find food in Egypt. That was okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Let's go to the next story, because the next story is interesting as well. Let me get there. This is chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt. They've kind of narrowly escaped a crisis. <laughs> he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He journeyed on by stages from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them living together. For their possessions were so great that they could not live together, and there was strife between the herders of Abram's livestock and the herders of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites lived in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herders and my herders, for we are kindred. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot looked about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, another fascinating story. Again, more history. Some of this is, is the story that explains why Abraham's family ended up here, Lot's family ended up there. But what, what's the kernel? What, what's the turning point of this story? Abraham's rich. Lot is rich. They have too many people and too much stuff. And so they need to separate. They need to divide. And how does that happen? That's where the kernel of this story is. Abraham, who in the previous story said, oh, we have a problem, Houston. I have a pretty wife. I've got to protect her and especially protect me. So I'm going to tell a lie. Now Abraham does something the opposite. He says to Lot, you pick first. We would never do that, would we? You know, when there's, when there's the piece of pie that's been sliced in half, you look for that slight, tiny, little, slightly bigger piece of the pie, don't you? I certainly do. <laughs> that's what's surprising about this story. Abraham says to Lot, you pick first. Now, let's play the story out differently. Let's play with it our minds just a little bit. If Abraham had acted in this situation the same way he acted in the situation back in Egypt with Sarah and Pharaoh, what might he have done differently? What would you have expected? What's that? Choose the better land. Exactly. Choose the better land. Let's get the microphone. Quick, we got to have it. So, and then, otherwise, he would have chosen the better land. Yes. However, in my mind, perhaps it was a form of repentance, knowing that uh -huh. he violated God's trust the first time. He was going to make up for it. Very interesting. Very. Oh, good. You get a gold star too. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating question, isn't it? Maybe Abraham is a little bit different, right? He saw how things went in Egypt with Pharaoh and was thankful that he got away with everything. And, and now he says, hmm, maybe I can do this differently. Fascinating idea. Yeah, yeah, let's go over here. Or there, get our first and then we'll go there. Go ahead, Susan. I, I'm putting a different spin on it because taking it, into today's world and thinking about Abraham. Say you're a salesman mm -hmm. and you're selling something. As a salesperson, I would want to make sure that everyone was as happy with the sale as I was mm -hmm. or am. In other words, if it's not good for them, it's not gonna be good for me. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe Abraham thought the same way. In other hmm. words, I, wanted, I want to make a happy situation. 
I am industrious enough that I can make it work regardless of which land I have. Mm -hmm. So make Lot happy. Right. So in his mind, let me make Lot happy, and in, in, in return, I will be happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And trust in God that he will make all things better. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll accept that as plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the text doesn't say anything to us. You know, if, if this were, you know, a, a murder mystery or something, it would have all kinds of backstory going on about what Abraham was thinking and the different ideas he's playing around with and what was going on with Lot and, and all that stuff. We have to fill in all that stuff. Carefully, though, carefully, because we can't actually say it. But I, there we go. You get a gold star, too. Very interesting thought. Okay, I'm very generous today. Have you noticed that? There we go. Yes. Um, to me, it seems like, um, and I know... You started with, it's, it, the Bible is not about you, but I, there are so many messages in the Bible that mm-hmm. I take personally or learn from. And it's that in one instance, Abraham being a human being was selfish and then was also unselfish. Sometimes you make good decisions, sometimes you make bad decisions. And it's just um, a message about the imperfection of human beings. Mm-hmm. And as you said, there was only one who was perfect. So um, I take that message, just the fallibility of... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The, the Bible, it, every once in a while it's fascinating, someone who, um, who is maybe not of the faith uh, or not comfortable sitting next to me at a dinner party um, wants to start talking about how the Bible is full of these stories about all these people that just do despicable things. And, and they're trying to prove that, um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what they're trying to prove. I, sometimes I think they're trying to prove that well, the Bible's full of stories about bad things that people do, as, as if, you know, that's a surprise. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. The Bible is full of, of real, the Bible is so, so real, Right. I mean, you can understand what Abraham did back with Sarah in that context. You can, you know, there's two good reasons there, two, two p- plausible psychological explanations for why Abraham did what he did here with Lot. You know, it is the real story of real people in real time over history. And underneath that story is the bigger story of what, of what God was doing. What what would that do for you? Let's say, I assume some of you have some decisions to make today, okay? Maybe some of you, maybe at least one of you here has a big decision that is looming before you. You know, do you move back to Texas, God forbid, to be next to your grandchildren? Um, you know, do you sell the house and move into a retirement home? You know, do you have another baby? Whatever it is, some, some big kind of decision, right? And, and you're wondering, what would God want me to do? What is the right decision, right? And that's perfectly legitimate. You should be asking, what is the right decision? But we're all old enough in this room to understand that sometimes no single right decision presents itself to us. There is just a decision, a choice. And sometimes we get paralyzed by making a choice when there's nothing super clear-cut about it. And, and I think God, you know, God honors our choices. 
God takes our choices, and at some point we make good choices, we make bad choices. Most choices we make have ups and downs to them, pros and cons, and there's no perfect solution. But still in the midst of all of that, God is there and God's purpose is going to be accomplished. And so for me, that says, just chill out a little bit, relax a little bit. Go ahead and make your choice. Go ahead and make your decision. And, and God is big enough to make what happen, to make what he wants to happen, happen. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. What else do you see in this? Yeah, over here with Martha. Well, the decision to, to let Lot have the bigger land, what if their shares were very different? What if Lot had a whole lot and Abram had a whole little? Mm -hmm. Would his decision be the same? Because we can be really generous when we both have plenty. Yeah, yeah. Very good point. Very good point. They're both rich. They, have, they both have a lot of stuff. So it's easy to say, fine, you go here, I'll go there, everything's good. Everything's good. That's very true. That's very true. I, I, well, I don't know, maybe I'll offend somebody, but this is true, so I'll offend you anyway. I'm constantly amused and also saddened when we hear of somebody who's given a whole bunch of money somewhere and we talk about how generous they are. And that's great. I love it when people give a whole bunch of money, especially to the village church. All right, that that is the right decision. Period. There are no, there is no gray in that. There's no, <laughs> right. And yet, at some point, you have to say, okay, well, you had all that money to give, and God bless you for doing it. But that doesn't make you any more generous than the person who had very little to give but still gave it. And so I get sometimes I get really nervous about. Speaking of somebody's incredible generosity. Yeah, great. I'm glad you... Again, I, that's a fantastic thing. But there's another side to it. And, and that's, that's, to me, partly where the Bible is so, so good. And it, it never lets any of us off the hook. It always says, yeah, but there's another piece to the story that takes it away from you. Takes it away from your self-centeredness and from praising you to praising God. And you're exactly right. When everybody has plenty of everything, it's very easy to be generous and to share. When you don't have it, then what goes on? There's the question. See, these are very, it's a simple little story. Both of these are simple stories on the surface. You start going down underneath. And remember, years is elapsing now. This isn't, you know, Abraham, you know, there was a famine, so Abraham pop down into Egypt for a couple of weeks and then pop back out. There's years elapsing here. Sometimes hold, not in Abraham's story, but in the, the rest of the stories that played out, sometimes there's generation upon generation. And all of a sudden something goes on and people say, there's God's hand at work again, right? And, and we expect a resolution to the story right at, you know, at the end of 30 minutes or at the end of 60 minutes, or if it's a movie at the end of two hours, right? No more than two hours. Every story has to be resolved. This is a long story going on. God is at work. Yes, Laura. It's interesting that Abram ends up in Canaan, which is where God told him he was going to um, succeed anyway. Yeah, so. yeah. Abraham ends up in Canaan. Yeah, Lot, Lot chooses somewhere else. Abraham ends up in Canaan. 
the, the pure skeptics, the people who think that the Bible was written after the fact in order to justify whatever happened, that it was made up from whole cloth, want to say that these stories do precisely that. They, they, they tell you why this all happened. If you look at it from the other perspective, you see, well, there were real people making real decisions in real time without the benefit of hindsight, only the benefit of foresight, which is horrible, and yet it all worked out according to God's plan. That's one, of the big, that's one of the big stories of Scripture. Regardless of what goes on, it's all going to work out according to God's plan. Ultimately, you take that back to Jesus, where, where Jesus' story, right? If Jesus is supposed to be the Savior of the world, then as far as the disciples are concerned, Jesus should take power and save the world, but he doesn't do that. He, he, he's the only one who follows God's plan perfectly and allows himself to be killed, which is the end of God's plan, isn't it? No, it's not. Good. I'm glad y'all picked up on that. <laughs> that would have made 24 years of ministry here absolutely <laughs> worthless. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> what else do you see in this? Isn't this fascinating? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Put yourself back into these situations. And then, as always, I'm interested in what you're going to do with this today. What it's going to say to you about the decisions you have to make or the decisions that were made for you, right? A decision was made for Sarah, right? And still God is doing something in all that. What about the decisions coming up in your life? All of us are the product of decisions that other people made. Do you realize that? All of us, everything, almost everything in our lives is something that was decided by somebody else or many somebody else's. And yet God is working in all that. That gives me great comfort. Just knowing that however many times I mess it up, still God's going to do what God's going to do. It's fascinating. Anything else you take out of this? Yes. I was just thinking that when God said to Abraham, I will give you and your descendants. Mm -hmm. Didn't have this, his own descendants yet. So maybe he was also thinking Lot was much younger and more likely to carry on. Yeah, yeah. Which descendants are we actually talking about? Yeah, so he was thinking of the greater, not just of himself acquiring a lot of stuff, but maybe his descendants that could come. Like yeah, that. yeah. Trying to take care of the family. I, you know, if you go, and we'll, we'll be looking more at this as we continue the stories about Abraham. There's a lot more stories to come. Um, it's probably, pick a number. How long has it been since Abraham had his initial come to Jesus meeting with God when God appeared out of nowhere and said, do this? You know, has it been five years? Has it been 15 years? You know, has Abraham heard from God since then? Abraham has changed everything in life and is trying to figure out and make it, make it work. And how many sleepless nights did Abraham stay up wondering how it was all going to work and what he should be doing, right? That's an interesting thought. Makes him more, much more human, much more. I believe Abraham existed, and the stories are true in their heart. Uh, some of the incidental details may have changed over time. It doesn't make any difference. But it makes Abraham very real. That's something that I want the Bible to be for you, is, is about very real people. In real life, 
living their lives out. Yes. So early on, you said that Abraham is the first person that God, you know, gave this incident, approached and did this, but he approached Noah. Mm -hmm. And Noah did what God asked him to do. Mm -hmm. So why is Noah considered prehistory and Abraham history? Yeah, good question. Good question. Part of that is because the story of Noah doesn't really continue on past, you know, Noah has, the world is saved, humanity is saved, humanity goes on. The story shifts radically then when we go to the story about Abraham and it picks up and we have a lot of specificity about the story of Abraham and his people then. Uh, And um, part of it is scholars' understanding of the story of the flood. Um, Most of the ancient um, um, world views, right, from different peoples, not not just the Hebrew peoples, uh, they have stories of a great flood where everything was wiped out. Um, there are other ancient stories, like the people compare the story of, of, uh, of uh, Abraham to the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? From the, from the, is it the Canaanite or the Iraqi cultures? I think it's the Canaanite cultures. Um, there's a lot of murkiness in all of that. But that's why, they, because Noah is kind of, it's, it's part of that big body of knowledge in some, every culture has its creation story. Uh, many of them have their flood story. But now the story about Abraham is specific to this one particular group of people. That's why they call it history. Good question. Yeah. Okay, I'll be history if we don't stop. Let's pray. God, thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for helping us to, uh, to see into uh, into the past, into people just like us. Uh, help us to see how you are at work in our lives today and help us to grow a little bit closer to you through all of that. For Jesus' sake, amen. The Lord willing, we'll see each other next week.